Today we are in part two um, of uh, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter three. For those of you who have not been a part of us for uh, the last little while, we started in Ezra. This is the last of Old Testament history. At the end of Nehemiah, 400 years before the time of Christ, but a very, very important time. So we've gone through Ezra. We've also inserted into Ezra the teaching out of the book of Esther, and which was uh, quite enlightening. And now we are in Nehemiah. Last week, we started with chapter 3, part 1, the gates. The title of that message and this message and on into, I think, this coming weekend is going to be the gospel is in the gates. You've got that, that, that handout in front of you. I'm going to be referring to it in just a few moments, and we're going to explain, I hopefully, uh, hopefully what I have meant by that. First of all, let's pray, then let's jump into the Scriptures. Father, we thank you now for your word. I pray that your word would go forth in power. I pray that your Holy Spirit, you're the only one through, by the power of your Holy Spirit who can bring a quickening that is necessary, absolutely necessary. First of all, for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, savingly, those who may be religious, those who may have head knowledge but not a true converted heart. And so I pray, first of all, that you do that work. And then, Father, I also pray for those of us who know you. We need to continue with the gospel. The gospel is that which brought us into your presence, into the kingdom, reality, and that is by which we grow as well. And so help us to understand that and uh, to explain it, uh, Lord, and also as we come to Think about Palm Sunday, the entrance of our Lord into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. I pray that we would gain insight into that as well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you might imagine, I get things across my desk and I get things in my email all of the time, all of the time. And a lot of those have to do with, uh, and I'll use these words advisedly, the perilous times in which we live, and then the answer to those perilous times. And it runs the gamut. Sometimes the answer to those perilous times is buying, stocking up on uh, uh, food so that you can survive the food shortage that is coming, or Switching to a different kind of power source, I was particularly intrigued with one of those articles that was entitled, Seven Ways to Prepare Your Family for What's Coming. What is coming? Students, do you have any idea what is coming? Well, yeah, eventually Jesus. But, but what the author was talking about, again, is the Apostle Paul talks about in the last days, difficult times will come. So we automatically know the answer to that. But here are the words that are many times used. Apocalyptic, catastrophic, things like climate change. The gas and the food shortages, I mentioned that about the food shortages a minute ago. 
And I'm talking about just our country. We haven't even gotten to the wars that are going on all around us in the world. How about inflation? How about crime? How about World War III? It's interesting that last year that was not even on the radar, and now World War III is a topic that's being talked about. How about border invasions? How about zombie invasions? Just so you'll know, I put about as much stock into catastrophic climate change as I do into zombie invasions, okay? That's just my opinion. Until the Lord comes back, we need to be about preparing for His return and preparing for what's next, what's around the corner. So how do you do that? How you prepare your family, I believe, and I'm going to posit this today, is the same way that the Apostle Paul would have said, and indeed does say in the Bible. Let me put it like this. We read this a few moments ago, uh, at least one statement that we're going to come up on next, but let me say it like this. The gospel really is everything. The best way we can prepare for what is to come. Let's say that climate change actually does happen, and from here over to the Pacific coast, that we just drop off into the ocean tomorrow. What's the best way to prepare for that? Go east? There's another way to prepare for that, and that is the gospel. The gospel. Listen, students, there may be a lot of answers out there for a lot of things, but the gospel is the answer to everything. In this verse, Paul says it like this, I delivered to you, not as one thing among many things, but as of ultimate, primary importance, what I also received. And that is the gospel. And what is the gospel? Here's why it's so important, because the gospel speaks of deliverance, of ultimate deliverance, as well as present deliverance. It is a present reality that all of us need. I don't know what your status is in this room. I can tell pretty much what age you are, but no matter what age you are, you do need to deal with ultimate realities such as salvation. Because on the other side of all of the difficulties around us is eternity. And that's why Paul says the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel is the answer. Now, I love this because the gospel speaks of the two different, the two different things that we're talking about with this little diagram out of Nehemiah chapter 3. Take that diagram, and I want you to look at it for a minute. Because the gospel speaks of the righteousness of God. Jonathan, thank you for having us read that whole thing. You didn't go into verse 18, but I will. There are two things that are revealed here. And I put this diagram in because this is, a, this is a picture of a spiritual reality. This really happened. 
There were physical people who built a physical wall and physical gates. Somewhere around 400 years or so before the time of Christ. But all the way through the Old Testament, we've seen this over and over and over again. God inserts into these physical pictures spiritual realities. Have you, have you got this? Or, or you, can you see it here? You guys have got better eyes than I have, so maybe you can see it. At home, I'm sorry you don't have this handout, but you need to realize, you, you can get this handout. You Listen to me, you are either inside the holy city where the temple is. We read last week, the presence of God. You're either inside that reality or you are outside. Either the gospel has become real to you, your sins have been discovered by you, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word, by the way, that you are a sinner against a holy God. The only way into the presence of God is through Jesus Christ, on the back of Jesus, by believing in Him, and you're ushered in to the presence of God. So you are either, and this is the spiritual reality, I've thought about this this week, and I've thought, oh my goodness, if, I just wonder how many people are going to be listening with their heads, maybe, maybe, but, but listening with their hearts. You're either in this place where the righteousness of God through Christ has been applied to you, or you are outside where the wrath of God is already upon you. You see, the wrath of God is, not is going to be revealed. People think, well, it's, yeah, at the second coming, there's going to be the great white throne judgment and all the rest of that. Look, it says that currently, right now, the wrath of God, which is just as precious a characteristic of the living God as is His righteousness. And so which is it for you? I'd just like you to take your pen and put a little dot. Where are you? Are you inside? Are you in the presence of God? I'm not talking about perfection, sinlessness. I'm talking about through Jesus Christ, have you come into the presence of God? Who gets to, by the way, who gets to get into the presence of God? The righteousness of God is revealed for whom? For all who believe. And that's the key. That's the only matter. That's the matter that really counts. And what is the gospel? Here it is. People talk, talk about all the kinds of things. This is the gospel. This, the gospel is not a mechanical um, sales pitch that you use to get people to make some kind of a decision. Now, we have witnessing methods. Those are okay. But we must understand that unless those methods, look at this, please, Unless those methods include this that Paul says is the gospel, Christ crucified for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ buried, on the th buried according to the Scriptures and Christ raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so that's why we began last week a study of the picture. How do we get in? To the holy city? Which gate do we come through? 
You remember from last week? Which gate do we come in through? The sheep gate. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the door for the sheep. John the Baptist looked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just as those Passover lambs were led through the sheep gate, Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way into the presence of the Father. And then last week we continued on. Do you remember what the fish gate was all, around, all about? We talked about the fact that when we are called to be a part of God's family, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We began automatically, we can't help it, to declare what we delight in, that which has saved us. And then we come around to the old gate. We, we remember the old truths of Scripture, the foundational. We differentiated between man's traditions, this is so important, and biblical bedrock doctrines that we go to the mat for, all right? And that's what is represented by the old gate. And then you look at the length, oh my, of the time between the old gate. We're getting those foundational doctrines like the five solas, the Apostles' Creed, other things that are foundational. And, and we walk through the inevitable valleys of life. We talked just a little bit about the, the suffering that we have to go through. Count it all joy, we said in our ABF class today, when you encounter various trials. We are going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we can know that He is with us and He'll carry us through. And then the last thing we talked about the la this last week was the dung gate. Everybody's favorite, right? I, I told, I told <laughs> if you weren't here last week, I said, Christians need to hang out at the dung gate. Dung means refuse. Dung means rubbish. Dung means dung. It's, it's, dung is yesterday's food. That would, li listen, Paul said, look, I, and he listed his pedigree and in, in Philippians chapter 3, and he said, all of that was food yesterday. It was that which fed me, but it's no longer because I found Christ. And everything needs to be reprioritized to make Jesus Christ the absolute Lord of my life. There's been a change of status. Now, we're going to continue around the gates. We're not going to finish today because we're going to end up at the eastern gate, all right? We're going to do these briefly because I want to, to, to share with you some things about the Eastern Gate that have to do with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, which happened, give or take, today, 2,000 years or so ago, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So let's look at these gates and go through them. First of all is the Fountain Gate. The fountain gate, what does that mean? The fountain, it has to do with water. It has to do with living water. Whatever could be the living water, what do we need after we've come to the old gate and the valley gate and the dung gate and we are applying the Word of God to our lives? We need the fountain gate. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Do you think much about him? You don't necessarily have to. You'll know if you're filled with the Spirit because you'll be speaking about and thinking about and dreaming about Jesus. You'll be thinking about your actions after you've reprioritized your life and every day you'll be asking yourself the question, are my actions, how I'm living my life, do they line up with the, the Word of God? And the Holy Spirit is one who pulls that off. Third person of the Trinity lives inside of you from the moment of regeneration. It's the Holy Spirit who takes the Word and affects change, change in your life. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers your life. Let me show you this. Two basic components of what the Holy Spirit will do in your life. And th by the way, th this is about as basic a doctrine as you can get. So please hear it well. First thing, I mentioned a minute ago, how do you know that you're filled with the Holy Spirit? When He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I personally know to what degree I am yielding to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me or I am grieving the Holy Spirit as to how I am responding to His convicting power of my sin and the righteousness of Christ and the judgment that was poured out on Him. In other words, if you truly are a follower of Christ, there will be a new conviction of sin. Second thing, he has an ongoing ministry. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. What a powerful part of His ministry. The Holy Spirit in you means that you have a new guide. Now, let me just say one more thing, and this is necessary for, I think, for Christians. It's necessary for all of us, okay? Beware of substituting the Holy Spirit by digging your own wells. The Holy Spirit is that spring that, that just flows. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't have to try to work it up. But if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, then you're going to fall into what the people of Israel did that Jeremiah the prophet speaks to. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. That's the first evil. The fountain of living waters, and then they have carved out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that ultimately will hold no water. I think that's why Jesus said, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And anything we use as a substitute for the Holy Spirit is not going to satisfy. Let's move on. Let's move on around the circle. The water gate. For those of us in a particular era, time era, water gate has a certain connotation. Now, this is interesting. The water gate. 
We just come out of the fountain gate, so what's the difference? The water gate symbolizes the Word of God applied. Now, the old gate was the Word of God in its subjective form. The Word of God is true. But we're going to come back to this. We do not want to be bucket heads. We do not ever at this church want to become those who have minds that are filled with knowledge, but it never makes its way down into our hearts. There's never any change into the likeness of Christ. And that's what the Watergate is all about. It's the Word of God applied. Does that make sense? And here, here we see a beautiful picture of it. Jesus loved the church. Who's the church? The building. This, this is a lovely building. It is. But we're not talking about the building. We're talking about the church, His bride that has existed since the founding of the church on the day of Pentecost all the way until the end when He comes back. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now, if you would... I don't want to take this out of the plural because he loves the church. We are a part of the church. I don't want you to get too individualized, but I do want you to apply it individually. Jesus loves you if you are a part of the church. If you're a born-again Christian, by definition, you're a part of the church. And Jesus loves you enough that he gave himself up for you that he might wash you with the water of the Word. And so what I am after, listen, I'm after this for me, I'm after this for my wife, for my kids as they were growing up, I'm after this for my grandkids. And I'm, I'm sure that most of you pray like this for your family, oh Lord, please. I'm so glad that my family comes to church. My family is in church. Many of you can't, can't say that, and you're praying for your family to be in church. But once they're in church, Lord, I, I'm not satisfied that they just grow up to be Pharisees. Head knowledge, all the right answers, but not walking in that cleansing that comes by the washing of the water of the Word. And I could go back and back and back and share with you illustration after illustration. But here it is. He wants to present you as a person who is spotless, blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the applications of this for me early on, I'll just, I was trying to say, okay, now, Lord, what, what is a, something that I can share of, of how this, this actually works? And I thought back to, as a college student, when I first started following Christ, and I started reading the Word, and some of my favorite books at that time were like the book of Galatians, and then right after that, the book of Ephesians. Oh, how I loved Ephesians. And then I came to Ephesians 4.29. That's the objective Word of God. And I can read it, and I can have it in my mind. 
but it needed, it needed desperately to be applied to my heart. Why? Because before I really started following Christ, and I am not, I am not proud of this, my language was terrible. And I don't mean my grammar. I mean, I could, I could cuss and almost peel the paint off the wall. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no rotten speech, that's more than just cussing, but it includes it. Let no unwholesome word, and I did a little digging, rotten speech, putrid speech. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, rotten speech, but only the kind of speech that is good for edification, for the need of the moment that it might bring grace to those who hear. I don't have that up there. I just, I memorized that. But guess what? The real crux was when it started on a daily basis, transferring from my head to my heart. So that the next time something happened and I was tempted to say, you, and then fill in the blank, the Holy Spirit took the Word of God and checked me. And I was able to pull back from that. Do you see how that works? Why that is so important? And that can happen in so many different areas. You may nev have never used a cuss word in your life. Even like cuss words. You don't use the H-E-double-L, you use heck. That's cussing light, okay? But maybe it's just that your speech is rotten because you never use it to build up. Or maybe you use it to build up certain people, but you don't use it to build up your spouse, your kids, or people to church, or... You know, it, it, it just has so many applications. And what is God's purpose for His washing of the water of the Word so that He can present you as a part of that pure bride to Himself? Wow, I, I could just park there and spend all day with my sins, let alone yours. Okay, let's move on. The horse gate speaks of, speaks of strength. I love this. The horse gate was uh, close to the king's stable. So the horse gate speaks of, of our strength, our, our warfare, our endurance. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Revelation chapter 19, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. Will there be animals in heaven? My kids used to ask me, Dad, will there be dogs and cats and other animals in heaven. I said, well, I'm not sure about that, but I do know there are going to be horses. One of my daughters really, really loved that because she really, really loved horses. But here it is, a white horse, one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. Listen, folks, I again, I refer back to the, our, our ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship class. I've had the privilege of, of teaching that now for a couple of years with, with Jamal Bridges. We co-teach, and we were in the book of Ephesians, and I said to them as we were talking about spiritual warfare, if you could put on spiritual 3D glasses, 
You ever been to the movie and you put on those spiritual, those three D glasses? You ever done that? Have you guys ever done that? And it, oh, I mean, you see things on. Is that really on the screen? If you could put on spiritual three D glasses, you would be shocked at the spiritual warfare going on around you right now. Seeking to steal the word, take it away. Seeking to invade your thoughts, build strongholds against the very. Word of God. And that's why James wisely says, here's the key to this in spiritual warfare, submit. First of all, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know one of the keys to that? James says it later on in chapter 5. It's accountability. I am so grateful for accountability relationships that so many of you are involved in. Where you meet regularly with someone who is asking you the questions that you need to be asked. How are you doing? How's your quiet time? Are you living according to the Word of God? And then we come to the East Gate. Wow, that was, that was fast, wasn't it? Do your own study, come back to that. But we come to the Eastern Gate. Do you realize that there were four other names to the Eastern Gate? We're going to talk about this more coming up on Friday night. And then maybe a little bit on Sunday, but particularly Friday night. The eastern gate was also called the golden gate. The beautiful gate. The mercy gate. And the gate of eternal life. And, and what is so amazing, it, it always amazes me, I hope it amazes you about Scripture, is that approximately 2,500 years ago, listen to this. 2,500 years ago, the prophet Ezekiel was given two very specific prophecies concerning the eastern gate. We're not going to deal with the second until Friday night. We're going to deal with the first one today. Look at this in Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 and 2, and then 4. A direct reference to what we celebrate today on Palm Sunday. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was as the sound of many waters. I'll refer to this in just a few minutes, but you remember the tumultuous crowd cheering for him. The sound of His coming was like the sound of many waters. The earth shone with His glory. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The glory of the Lord coming from the east. And approximately 500 years after that prophecy, Jesus fulfilled it when He entered Jerusalem in what was called the triumphal entry. Now, you remember about the same time as Ezekiel's prophecy, Zechariah. I don't know if some of you remember this, but when we went through Ezra chapter 5, Haggai and Zechariah are, are mentioned specifically as prophesying in those days to the children of Israel. So all of this is contemporary, Ezekiel. And they were all looking 500 years into the future. Man, we can't even predict the price of gasoline tomorrow. 
Think of that. 500 years into the future and something so exact. Look at Zechariah's prophecy. Talking about Jesus and the triumphal entry. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Did you realize this prophecy was 500 years before the event itself that was listed in John chapter 12? And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, folks, you're you're either going to have to believe one of two things here, that this book is just a jumble of made-up stuff that happened to come down to us from several hundred years ago, and that's how they made this all fit, or you're going to have to believe that God, in His providence, outlined the whole progress and process of redemption. Do, do you know how many prophecies of Jesus there were in the Old Testament? About 300. Do you know how many of those prophecies Jesus filled, fulfilled? Yeah, you're right. All of them. In incredible detail, Jesus is God, and He is a a, a Lord, and He alone fulfills all of Messianic prophecy by doing this. And I don't understand all of what the, the, the colt, the donkey is all about, but I do know a couple of things about this that we know. But by doing this, by coming and making His triumphal entry, the weak of his passion when he was crucified, he was saying to the Jews, guys, I'm here. The Messiah that you saw prophesied years ago, I am he. Every Jew would know enough to know that these were prophecies of the true Davidic Messiah and King. And they would be fulfilled to the smallest detail. And that's why That's why they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. Second thing, why would he ride a donkey? We don't get it. But in the ancient Middle East, the person, the king who was riding a war horse would be coming in victory. Becoming as a conquering, warring king. That's what we saw in the book of Revelation That is yet future. But when a king rode a donkey, he was coming in peace, righteousness, having salvation, and humble. And that's why when the angels announced Jesus, they said, peace on earth. Paul tells us in Ephesians that he himself is our peace. Let me just read to you, and and by the way, the account of the triumphal entry is found in all four of the Gospels. 
Very few events are found recorded in all four. That means it's very, very significant. So what I've done is take all of those primarily from Luke and then a little bit from the Gospel of John. I've compacted it, and I want to read for you and then make a few applications for us about the triumphal entry. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So the Pharisees said to one another, Look, the whole world has gone after him. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, you know what comes next. The very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, this is one of the most gotcha phrases, I think, in all of Scripture. When he draw, drew near the city, he got on the colt and he's coming up to the city. He's coming to the eastern gate. He saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you. He's looking forward 40 years in the future when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. And in one of the most utterly tragic statements that he could make, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here you have it. 500 years after it was prophesied, the whole city, or, or virtually all of it, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, the Pharisees would say, the whole world has gone after him. But doesn't it seem that the story changes dramatically? When Jesus comes to the city and it says that the Savior wept. Why? Well, you could say, well, because we, we know that Titus and his Roman legions would come along in 70 A.D. They would destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, not one stone standing upon the other. Yeah, we know that, but why? Let me just try to say three things that are so applicable to us today. Jesus knew something about the crowds. They were cheering. They were enthusiastic. But he knew that they really, really didn't realize the time of his visitation. So here are the three things that I just want to say to us. We can take our cue. Now, we've been talking about Jesus, the prophecy, him coming into Jerusalem through the eastern gate. But I want to turn it 
and try to draw some application for you and for me about what true discipleship is and isn't. And he knew the people, and that's why he wept. First thing is this. True discipleship is more, listen to me, that enthusiasm. Feelings for Jesus are good. But they are not the same as following Jesus. You got that? To say that the massive crowd was enthusiastic is an understatement. They destroyed trees. They tore down. They cut off palm branches. They threw their coats on the dirty road. There was loud shouting and cheering. I remember years ago attending a Promise Keeper Conference. Anybody ever, any of you guys ever go to Promise Keepers? This was in Arrowhead Stadium. And before the speakers came out, we had a Jesus cheer. Remember that? So one side would start with, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And then the other side would respond. They'd try to be louder. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And we would go back and forth and back and forth for a few times. And it was just pandemonium. It was fun. It was enthusiasm personified. You're you're guessing what I'm about to say, but did it last? Don't hear me saying that emotions are not good. Frankly, there sometimes I think in Baptist churches, we could use a little bit more Excitement, enthusiasm, all the rest of that. But So don't hear me downing enthusiasm or feelings. God loves them all. But don't ever substitute enthusiasm for following Jesus. The question has to be asked for me. When I, I was doing it too, I love Jesus, how about you? But then when I got on the bus to come home, would I come home? And would that translate into following Jesus? Do you know what happens when, when it doesn't? Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. Because we don't recognize the time of our visitation. Let me make this statement. I wrote it and then I put two stars by it. So it must be important. This is for us, Heritage. It's not for anybody else. Because you're sitting here listening to the Word of God. The integrity of your celebration and enthusiasm on Sunday will only be completed by your obedience and following Jesus on Monday. And Jesus wept because He knew those same crowds that were tearing things apart and shouting and hooping and hollering and all the rest of that saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, on Friday would be saying, crucify him. Second thing, true discipleship is more than just an experience. Well, that's kind of like the enthusiasm. 
but it's a little bit different. Within the crowd was a number of his disciples. And, I, you know, I, I've thought as a, as a church leader, as a pastor, many times, what were those guys feeling on the day of the triumphal entry? Now, you, you might not ever feel like this, but I'm, I'm thinking here they are. They've, uh, they've been following Jesus. Man, they've had ups and downs and all of the rest of that. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know this for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of them might have been thinking, finally, finally, we've arrived. All that hard work has paid off. Finally, we are successful. The crowds are coming out. We're packed. We're going to have to bring in chairs. I had 125 likes on my Facebook post. And I've got 3,000. I don't even know about this stuff. How many followers is good on Twitter or Instagram? Or do you even have followers? I don't know. But what I'm saying is, there was probably the feeling, not only with enthusiasm, but this incredible experience that, you know, finally, Lord, finally, in this life, I've arrived. You know, I remember the Apostle Peter when he had that experience when Jesus was transfigured, and Peter, James, and John went up with him. Here's what he said, well, let's just, let's just build a tabernacle here. Let's build a church here, and we'll stay. And the Father said, that's not what it's about. You listen to my son and get busy. I, I think there are so many people who have, this, this is a challenge for those of you in the room who are not following Christ. You've come in here, but, but you know that in your daily life you're not following Christ. And if I were to come alongside you, you'd say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm saved. I'm saved. I walked the aisle as a child. But, but here's the thing you need to hear. You'll probably hear this next Sunday, too, when we have a lot more visitors. Because I'm afraid that, uh, and by the way, I, I've for years heard preachers say, well, I don't like the CEO people that come to our church. You know what CEO is, don't you? Christmas and Easter only. I don't understand that. I'm glad to have them. Because at least it represents an opportunity where if the Word of God is proclaimed and the Spirit of God is working in their heart, then maybe they'll come to the place of saying, my life has not changed. But instead of saying, I don't belong here, that's when you repent, you turn to faith in Jesus Christ, and then you're born again in the family of God, and you really do belong here. And that's the cool thing. Third thing, true discipleship is more than just a feeling and it's more than just an experience, but it's also more than an education. And this is, again, I said this a few minutes ago, we're not trying to get a church full of just people who have head knowledge. Having head knowledge is not the same as following Jesus. People can know a lot about him and still miss him. I am amazed, and I don't know, it's not for us to judge, but it seems like every week there is another megachurch or another church where we hear 
of, and, and it's mostly the, the leaders of those churches, pastors who have fallen, and, and we, we, don't, we don't know where their hearts are, but could it be they have lots of knowledge and no true saving faith? And that's why Jesus said, if only they had known the things that make for peace, but they're going to miss it. So what does it mean for us having real and deep and lasting peace? Go back to the beginning and what we said here. It's the gospel. It's Jesus and His salvation. In the face of difficult times, how do you prepare your loved ones? It's the gospel. And I'm, I'm amazed in this particular passage of Scripture when he talked about that, when he wept. He made it very personal. He said, you did not understand the time of your visitation. So the key is, if I'm under conviction and I know that I need to deal with God so that my life is transformed to be a part of the bride that the water of the Word is washing, I can't point to someone else and say that person is causing me to do this or causing my problems. It's you and your visitation. I beg of you. Don't let this just be another sermon, triumphal entry, and the pastor preached on the eastern gate. No, oh, that was pretty cool how he wove that all together. No, 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 no. This is a personal word that the Lord Jesus is visiting you through the power of the Holy Spirit with his word. And what a tragedy it would be if you missed today your visitation. And went out not to follow him. Later on, in fact, maybe not in so many words, but to say, I don't want you in my life, Jesus. Crucify him. Don't miss him. Don't substitute feelings or an experience or knowledge for knowing and following Jesus. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the reality of it. It's really nothing new. We, we don't create anything, fancy paradigms, interesting kinds of outlines and diagrams. It's, it's all from your word. Anything that is true is from your word. And so, Lord, we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, transformation, for everyone who believes. Lord, I pray that no one here would miss that today, unsaved, but certainly the majority of us know you. Don't let us miss the power of the gospel for continued transformation in our own lives. So I'm going to thank you in advance that I, I believe that you'll do that here. And I believe you'll do it for your glory and for the good of your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.